Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. When I was in middle school in the suburbs of Maryland, a man, let's call him Robert, started doing some occasional gardening and house cleaning for my parents. By high school, Robert was our full-time housekeeper and a nanny for me and my sister, a family member, really. And he had become a she, let's call her Tina. My sister and I learned to use her new pronouns, and we watched as her clothes, and then, with the help of hormones and surgery, her body changed to that of a woman. At the same time, the transition we went through with Tina at home was playing out in American popular culture. Homosexuality and drag and other queer lives and identities came out of the closet and onto the stage, screen, and streets. In 1984, in Manhattan's Tompkins Square Park, Wigstock was born. It started as a kind of after-party and evolved into a DIY, outrageous, funny, and fabulous annual drag festival that by the 90s was drawing crowds in the thousands. It's hard even to think back to the time when Robert, who became Tina, had to hide who he was for fear of upsetting his religious mother, or who knows, maybe not getting that gig with my folks. In a world where RuPaul's Drag Race is going into its 12th smash season, it's easy to forget the courage it took, and still takes, for so many people to live on the outside what they know they are on the inside. My guest today is documentary filmmaker Chris McCarble, the director of Lady Gaga biopic Gaga 5 Foot 2 Inches. In his new HBO documentary, Wig, Chris and his stars take us back through the history of drag in New York City, and they show us that now more than ever, we need public spaces like Wigstock, where we can perform, amplify, and celebrate our differences. Welcome to Think Again, Chris. Thank you. So I think we should begin this by outing the fact that we've known each other for years and we are re-meeting again for the first time in... Over 20 years? I, yeah, I mean, maybe 21 <laughs> years and it's just a totally random surprise. Yes. So it's really great to see you, It's Jason. really, really, <laughs> really good to see you too. It's very exciting. In fact, I've Googled you once or twice and I, I guess I was misspelling your name. I think it was like I was M-U or, you know, I don't know what... what sure, it's a complicated K- K- name. <laughs> K-H or something, you know, and I, I was like, oh, I guess I've lost him forever and now yeah. Here you are. And you've you've been leading a very interesting life, it seems. Yeah, I guess so. Or maybe I've been making work about other people that lead very interesting lives. <laughs> it's very more like it. But yeah. Exactly, though. I mean, what could be more interesting, I guess, than getting to immerse yourself deep into the lives of these interesting and complex people? We, we were just talking about the fact that I was like studying psychology back then. And then I went into art. And in a way, I guess what I do now feels like this combination of those areas for sure. We'll definitely talk at some length about about wig, but I also watched now am I saying this right? Gaga five foot two inches or five, five foot two, two five yep. foot two. That was most most definitely a delicate psychological operation, like getting into that level of depth with her. What I didn't even realize, you know, at the outset was that she, she, you know, she struggles with chronic pain and that would end up becoming a, a large feature of the, of the story that we were telling. It's partly about her experiences as a pop star and the kind of like athletic feats that she goes to, to pull off the performances that she does. But all the while she is uh, kind of privately struggling with fibromyalgia and chronic pain. Both my wife and I remember on the fact that her life, while it has so many extraordinary facets and moments to it, also looks extremely difficult. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I guess that's also maybe part of the experience for me in making that was just being able to highlight Mm -hmm. the reality that you can achieve all of your dreams and and reach this place of unimaginable success and and still struggle and suffer in your own way. I mean, it seems like you met her at the right 
moment where she was ready to she was making an album that was more personal and she yeah. was kind of ready to open up in that way but mm -hmm. like did you when you went into it did you realize that that she yeah. was going to be that laid bare no I, I had no yeah. expectations i liked her a lot and knew her and was a fan of her music but like didn't really have any insight into what her interior world was going to be like so going into it it could have gone any way and that's the thing with making documentaries is like you have to be kind of open to whatever the story is going to be. And it's great. I mean, it's, it can be also frustrating when you're making films because you want to tell one story and you end up telling something wildly different. You know, there's even a moment in there where she's like, you can't use any of this in the final film. And I right. guess she finally, she allowed you <coughs> she, to yeah, use yeah, it. Yeah. Yes. yeah, I mean, and she was even joking when she said it because it was mo it was mostly just a moment where she was like being kind of dishy. Yeah, she seemed a bit wasted at that moment. Was, too. had a couple <laughs> drinks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk about Wig because sure. what's interesting about it is that you kind of let the history and the people tell the story be the story in a sense. Yeah. And there are lots of doors that I see into there's a lot of deeper stuff going on that they some of which they get into and a lot of which they just kind of touch on. Like yeah. at one point a couple of people are talking about how within queer communities or LGBTQ plus communities that people there just as much as out in the wider world are putting people into little boxes and little categories. And you feel this tension that's kind of like uh, slightly spoken yeah. between those two things, the idea of coming together and the idea yeah. of separate identity. I think it's a theme that runs through the entire movie, and it starts with Lady Bunny at the very beginning saying, you know, you, we talk about the sense of community, but are we really in each other's lives? You know, she's from another generation. She's just coming to terms with technology and social media and how that's really mediating people's lives. And you do have this split because you have young people who feel for a good reason that their voices that were always marginalized are now able to come together and for other people to have access to those stories. Right. And that's an incredible power. And it's a wonderful you know, aspect of social media. And then you have the generation where Bunny comes from, where she feels like, well, I used to go to these drag shows and my favorite part was being backstage and like kicking with all my friends and everybody having like a, an IRL party. And now I just look around, everyone's staring at their phones. Right. And so she feels this tremendous loss of community. So I think one of the themes of the movie is really kind of addressing that and letting the different characters in their own way explore how much things have changed within the queer community. So, I mean, there's the digital aspect to it. And then there's also just the way the conversation around identity has evolved, like right. what, what it meant to be how they invented the idea of drag queen, whatever that meant to yeah. them back then. And now all of all of these new kinds of conversations that are happening and yeah. discussions around non-binary and transgender and so on, right? There's yeah. an evolution there as well. Yeah, and I think that's happening in mainstream culture. It's happening for great reason and, and <clears throat> all over the world. And I think that it, there's this microcosm that you get to experience within the, the drag community of how those conversations are affecting people's um, narratives and how they come together. I guess what I want to get at is, do you see a tension between the process whereby people are trying to establish very specifically unique and individualized identities, the proliferation of pronouns, et cetera, yeah. and this idea of community? There is a tension there. And I think it's, and again, it plays out usually online. 
yeah. because I think that's the now the place where everybody comes together and it's an equalizer. You know, the idea of bringing Wigstock back, which is what Bunny did and with Neil Patrick Harris and David Burka this past year, right. um, which really was the catalyst to this film, right. was the idea to revive it. But the idea for her to bring it back, I think, was rooted in this experience of not feeling maybe uh, like community resembles what she had, why she was in it to begin with, and really wanting to have that physical IRL experience with people, with old friends. It was, you know, in a way it was a family reunion, sure. but then there's this great opportunity to highlight newer queens like Charlene Incarnate is right. a, a you know, big character in the film. And Charlene's journey is very different from Bunny's. And she says that right from the outset. Somebody asks her, you know, do you think you and Bunny are the same? And she's like, no, we're like from a totally different time and our messaging is totally different. Charlene is trans. And for her, being a trans drag queen is a very important part of her message and her experience. And she wants that to be, you know, she wants to kind of blow open the drag stage and not to say that trans women didn't exist on the stage. In fact, her point was that they always did. Right. But now for her, at least it was about being more visible and, and claiming that identity. It's also a lot of body positivity in terms, you know, yeah. she's, she's nude a lot and yeah. just kind of like being out there visible as she is, you know? Yeah. And again, it, I like, think for her, it's, it's about the time. And she feels like this is the time for that. Yeah. And in five years, somebody will think that that's outdated or whatever. Right, you right, know, right, her right, messaging right. will change as it always does. I mean, for me, I feel like this film could have been about a lot of other subcultures that become mainstream. It could have been about hip hop. There's so many sure. patterns that just seem to repeat themselves. It's like there's this kind of pure moment mm. where something starts in the underground and then a couple people are able to take it to the next level and it becomes, you know, citywide in this case. And then it be goes to the mainstream. You know, you have the world of Wonder Guys and RuPaul who came out of that scene. And that was so cool for me to watch them, like right. realize that they authentically were a part of that community and they were able to take those values and those, you know, signifiers and bring them onto like this global stage. So now how all these kids have access to what would have been like a really provincial experience in New York, you know, you could, because of the internet, because of television, you could live in a really remote part of the world and still get access to what it means to be a drag queen and to still be a part of that culture. So right, it's, it's just kind of right. cool to just watch it over the course of 20 years or so, have this huge arc around the world. So in the early the beginning, it's this, the Pyramid Club, is yeah. that what it's called? So, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, so, which is like a drag club and it's it's just pretty, they're inventing it as they go. It's very yeah. DIY. I liked, I found it really interesting, the idea that you have to find the drag queen within you, that basically you go inside and what, and what you feel, you try to externalize it. Yeah. And in the process of it, I guess, trying different wigs and costumes and behaviors yeah. and attitudes and identities on, you somehow arrive at your, your drag. Your drag. Yeah. 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 Somebody says that in the film, like it's an externalized expression of what you are inside, whatever that is. If you have the, uh, the freedom and the opportunity to express it, that's your drag. And, and that's a great simplified way to think about drag. You know, p people obviously think of it in terms of gender because it most often is playing with that, but it isn't that necessarily for everybody. Right. And it doesn't have to be that. What's interesting there is sort of the play and the tension between artificiality and authenticity, right? Yeah. I, I mean, if you want to comment on that. Well, even oh, yeah. from like a, I just think of that as being part of its most interesting aspects as performance art. You know, yeah. <clears throat> people talk about drag in theoretical context as well. And then there's also, what does RuPaul say? You're born naked, everything else is drag, right? That quote <laughs> is always persistent because <laughs> oh, yeah. it's so good and it really sums it up so well. You know, I think 
part of it is about performativity, like especially as you were saying, as any given movement or any given identity position appears in the culture or tries to like stake out territory in the culture, it's having to talk back to whatever the conceptions and stereotypes and whatever might be. So yeah. in, in a way it has to overperform itself. It has to kind of almost yeah. um, parody itself at first in some ways. Yeah. And then that changes when money gets involved too. It's like you get to watch every culture sort of evolve as the stakes go up. Yeah. And for some people, it's more important to hold on to the purity of its whatever original sources. Right. And for other people, it's more important to bring it to as many people as possible and make it a, a global movement. And again, it's the same with the punk scene. You know, we, yeah. we watched this happen. And so like, again, this film for me, it's, it's very personal in a way. I have friends that are in it, people that I've like looked up to since I was a teenager that are, appear in it. But then it was also just, and I didn't know this going in, but I, I realized, oh, you know, this is not just about drag. In watching this movie, you get this kind of experience that could be applied to a lot of other subcultures. What did you learn, you know, in this like experience that you didn't know before? I mean, by talking to these folks, by going back into this history, what? I mean, for me personally, I had a lot of a better insight into New York City and it's sort of the birth of of queer subculture and subculture in the East Village. Yeah. Because I, um, you know, I obviously have known about drag and followed it. And I watched the Wigstock movie in 1995, which is an incredible film. And it was like a time capsule of that moment. But, um, you know, I didn't really understand what the East Village scene was like. And I didn't understand how subversive drag was. I mean, for a lot of those kids, it was like more punk than punk. Like, okay, right. you could like shave your head and put on a spike collar, or you could throw on a wig and heels and traipse around Times Square. Like that was brave. And that, yeah, that because was radical. You, you were, as they point out in the film, you were risking yeah. bodily harm quite often. Yeah. So when these kids were doing that, it was more than just fun. I mean, it was fun and that was the only reason to do it, but there was like a major political imperative at stake and they were activists and, you know, again, AIDS was happening full, full on at the time. So, right. you know, the, the stakes were just so much higher. I mean, the other thing that I was thinking about while I was watching it was how Wigstock and that kind of performance becomes a sort of like inverted mirror of the Puritan Protestant American culture, you know, basically mm -hmm. just giving a space, giving permission, as it were, not just for the people in that community, but for everyone, in a sense, to fly their freak flag. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. In the middle of the day. Yeah. In the middle of yeah, the park. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's what was so cool about it is that, you know, somebody mentions it in the film, but it's like drag was always relegated to late night in the back of a club. Right. And for the first time, it was like out in the broad daylight. And I always like to think of it like it really has this kind of like metaphor. There's this metaphor for me where you think of it as like this seed that's germinating underground at the Pyramid Club in the darkness and then makes its way into the Light and then really just explodes all over the city and becomes this really lush, incredible, you know, living thing. And then through the technology and the uh, experiences on the, in the media, it just explodes further out across the globe and becomes this, you know, again, that form of drag has now become the dominant drag narrative. So it's just really interesting to watch how like a small group of people really just doing their thing underground in this one moment led to what has become a global movement. You know, like we were saying, you can always lament and there's there's reasons to lament the loss of a kind of DIY underground culture with its dangerous sexiness and those yeah. stakes, you know, that that make it a different energy. But, you know, when it comes out into the daylight like that, first of all, it, like it, it allowed itself a, a kind of a silliness and a celebratory just 
love orientation that was yeah. just a, a different a different thing, you know? For sure. But then the other thing about the experience of making this movie is that I reminded myself, and I hope I do in the movie as well, is that New York is still happening for, for kids somewhere. And it's like right. as much as people, you know, even when I moved to New York City, everybody was like, New York's over. You know, that was always <laughs> the thing that right. you hear when you come here. And I think this reminder that it's it's might be over for you, but it's not for some kids in Bushwick who are having the be their best New York is happening right now. And so the film, ex you know, explores the Bushwick scene and Charlene's home right. at Casadiva and how, you know, for them, they were having that experience of what the Pyramid Club represented for Bunny and her friends 25 years before. Yeah, there's an economic component, which you get into a little bit, which is basically about the fact that Manhattan has become incredibly pricey. And so, you know, what happens is people radiate outward and yeah. hence Bushwick. But again, yeah, that's still within New York City. They're yeah. still in the grid. They're still... And it's still really uh, building off of what was happening 25 years ago. So it's like the culture still persists. And that's what I like, I guess, coming away from this film for me, at least, was like, like queer subculture persists. Um, right. Despite whatever mainstream kind of form it takes, It's there's still going to be an underground happening somewhere. I mean, yeah, even if it moved to Detroit or whatever. Sure, you it's know, still like, part of the same community. It still exists, yeah. Um, this is great, though. This feels like we're just having a conversation at like <laughs> yeah, four in the morning in right? 1999. <laughs> I know. I knew it was going to be like this. <laughs> yeah. I knew, I knew that you would not have changed uh, uh -huh. too much. <laughs> um, the new wig stock, the one that happened last year. And is this going to yeah. like be an ongoing thing or is it a, a one-time thing or do know. they not know? Yeah, or, I don't know, know if they know. I, I, to be honest, I, I, the, I know the intention was for it to be a revival for at least that year and kind of a family reunion. Right. And I think the idea is like if it comes back, that's great. I, but I, I haven't heard so much about the details of that. I mean, do the people, did you get a sense of whether the people who, who were involved in that Lady Bunny and, and the others in the cast, what was their assessment of how it went in terms of the, you know, reviving the spirit and also connecting to community and doing yeah. the kinds of things they wanted to do? I mean, it, it was an eight hour festival. And by the end of it, like everyone was having the best time. It was <laughs> wasted and exhausted. And it just felt like, you know, it was this, you know, like I said, it was this bringing together of the younger generation, the older generation and people who were never in New York. Uh, for anything, you know, people who are part of the drag race scene that came out just just to be a part of the festival. Right. You know, Bianca Del Rio didn't live in New York during the time of Wigstock. Is good friends with Bunny and was sort of like the MC of the event. Okay. Um, she's incredibly funny. She, you know, super famous, super successful drag sure. queen. At one point, says it doesn't get better; it gets awkward. Oh yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So she's yes. she's just yes, she's yes, really yes. super funny. And you know, know again, she doesn't come from the Wigstock scene, but um, she's friends with you know. A lot of them and and she her appearance on the stage at Wigstock was a big deal you know she's this I think she was like helicoptering out to some performance or some event somewhere else across the world okay you know she's a super uh, in-demand performance artist drag queen and she showed up and she was uh, there to MC it so it was cool it just brought a lot of these worlds together I now deeply regret not having been there I don't know where the hell I was but when was it was, was it, it was it last uh, September uh, or I'm trying to remember the exact date okay but um, if they ever do it, it was again, the it was I'm Labor going. Day weekend. That's right. that's when they do it. Oh, I was probably getting my son ready for school. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you know, you talk about 
like everything has become hyper connected and and underground movements become professionalized and and go global and this this sort of thing and i think i think there's a interesting parallel between wigstock last year and what happened to gaga at the time when you were when you were filming her where she had been like the glamour queen of the world with her 80 billion identities and outfits and whatever, which was all wonderful. But then there comes a point where, you know, in these trajectories, in these arcs where people want something authentic again, they want a connection, they want a more personal feeling, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that I'm drawn to stories like that. I I do see patterns in my own work where I realize that, you know, I I think I'm going to go into this thing and it's going to be like this super fun and lighthearted and funny thing. Like you're going to make a movie about Lady Gaga. Like that could be just like a total laugh riot, whatever. But I don't know why for some reason, whenever I intersect (laughs) with this story, it just gets really, it just can, yeah, it goes deep and, and a little dark. And it's just sort of, maybe it's just either those are the stories that find me or I am drawn to those. I also am just really into the, the story behind the story. You know, I'm sure. always, I love pop. I love pop music. I love pop culture. I love it because it's this unifying experience and that which is so rare, you know, now. Right. And, and so, you know, what, what it's almost like to me, it was like, it's like folk culture. Like what was folk culture a long time ago? Like the song that everybody knew how to sing and they'd be at the pub singing along with it because everyone knew the words and it was democratizing in that way. That's what pop is for me and pop, pop music and pop culture. And so I, I, I'm drawn to those stories, but then again, there's always like the, what, what's happening behind the curtain kind of thing. And I think that's, that's where I often come in. I tend to be sort of like overly serious and skeptical of surfaces and, you know, overly overwrought, you know, yeah, presentation yeah. And, and fashion and all of that stuff, you know, yeah. but I can see the value in this kind of like dream factory thing that pop does. And I think that that feeds people a lot, but I think that people also are hungry and can get starved for authenticity and connection. Yeah. Including yeah. Lady Gaga herself, yeah, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, again, that's what I'm drawn to. I, I can't help but be drawn to authenticity, and I love seeing those connections happen. I just, uh, for some reason, I locate them in a pop space. Uh-huh. And maybe because I just happen to like pop music, and I'm just looking for something more, you know, trying, trying to get a little bit more out of it. Right. Or, you know, there's something for me that is so authentic about a shared experience. You know, I think the commercialization of pop is obvious, and it's sort of like, yeah, it's about selling records, or it's about out, you know, selling products. I think in our culture, our economy, uh, everything is that to a certain extent. Sure. So that doesn't disqualify something for me in terms <laughs> right, of right. whether or not it has value. It's almost like that's a given when you have a mass experience. But if there's some value in it beyond just the w- moving of units or whatever, and there often is, I mean, especially with Gaga, I mean, she really is an artist and she really is in it yeah. for the right reasons. <clears throat> um, she also happens to be really fucking good at writing pop songs. Oh, so it's yeah. like she writes a hook and she writes a chorus and the whole world suddenly takes takes notice, you know, which is such an incredible power. I always thought of it as a kind of like casting a spell. Like it's the closest thing to actual magic because imagine like an incantation that you just repeat for three minutes and suddenly you it can take the, grab the attention of the entire world. That's right. There's very few things that are like equivalent to that. It's that and it's also the power of her, her voice and her connection to the singing like yeah. so even if she's behind some totally weird crazy mask and again i think that those 
performances are one way of being more yourself or giving yourself space to be more selves, you know? Yeah. But also there's just this like groundedness and power to her voice that yeah. is just... Yeah, she has talent. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a real, oh, it's yeah. like a natural talent and a, and a really highly worked on cultivated talent. And I think that people are just impressed. You know, there's something that you're like, oh, you're in awe of that voice. Okay. I think this is as good a place as any to cool. go to the random second part of the show. Sure. To explain for any audience members who have not heard the show before, Big Think also does video interviews. Um, our producers have picked two surprise clips from the many, many in the archives on subjects that I don't know what they're going to be, and neither Chris nor I has seen these before. We're going to watch one, talk wherever we go, watch the other, do the same, and that's, that's that. Cool. All right. Okay. Sounds good. This first one is called, uh, the video is called How Toxic People Wage Emotional Warfare on Others. <laughs> and the person talking is Bill Eddy, who is the co-founder and president of something called the High Conflict Institute. Okay, let's see. Conflict emotional warfare is something that I've slowly learned and realized exists everywhere that there are high conflict people. This can be in families, this can be in the workplace, that can be in community and volunteer organizations. So here's how high conflict emotional warfare works. There's four parts to it. First, the high conflict person seduces somebody, and it may be one person or several people in an organization, and they tell them what they want to hear. And so they say, you know, I'm with you, I agree with you, we're, to, we're a team on this problem. And then they attack a target of blame. And so it's seduction and then attacking somebody over there. You know, it's us against that person or those people. And people, everyone's familiar with this in families, workplace, community. There's people you can realize, oh yeah, they're doing that. They're seducing this person and attacking that person. And then they divide the community by doing that. They get other people that agree with them to attack the people they're attacking. And in mental health terms, it's called splitting, where you split people into all good and all bad. And splitting is associated with borderline and narcissistic personality disorders. People honestly see the world in these all good, all bad ways, but it's contagious. And so they tell half the people you're wonderful and half people you're terrible. And those people start fighting each other. And while they're fighting each other, the high conflict person gets to dominate the community. So I'm calling this the community. It could be the family, could be the workplace, could be a neighborhood, could be a volunteer group, could be an athletic group, could be a music group. Uh, we see this in all areas of life when there's a high conflict person and we're seeing it more and more in politics. And so they divide and dominate that way at the highest levels, even smaller you know, cities, states, et cetera, school boards, homeowners associations, but this process of high conflict emotional warfare, they attack people that usually are left alone, people close to them, and that's contagious, and that's how they dominate. 
we're going way way back in history to your um, psychology studies. Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Although there's something so universal, I think, about what he was saying that I'm kind of like, oh, wait, this is very familiar, just in terms of like being a person in the world. You yeah, know, you're yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, well, I feel like I've been that person sometimes. Have you never been that person? <laughs> um, a divisive person? <laughs> well, I mean, like where you're, you're in a situation where... I mean, where you have to ally with somebody yeah. to, to identify. I mean, for example, like if somebody else in an organization or a situation is a quote unquote high conflict person or is causing a lot of problems, yeah. especially if they're like the leader of the organization, yeah. the people below them need to kind of connect I, on that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like and identifying them as a problem or whatever. Yeah. That kind of tribal kind of impulsive behavior is very scary to me. Yeah. And I and whenever I feel it happening, either either the impulse in me or around me, I I get I get really freaked out. Cause I like know the like natural end of this could be really terrible. So even if it just starts out small or just like gossip or like playfully teasing people in order to like divide within a group because it's fun or it's funny and not to because humor is also can be really like used as a weapon but humor is also really necessary right but it's like those little moments too where I find myself getting really like uh maybe a little overly aware of it that's interesting yeah I can I can be pretty paranoid about it sort of along the lines of what you're saying where you know if I have the sense that other people are doing these things, then yeah, a switch flips in my head where I'm like, oh, that is that part of human nature and everything yeah. is going to go all to hell. Yeah, right, I, right, I get it. Right. I get it. It's yeah. because it's scary. Yeah. And you have to kind of manage that paranoia and be like, okay. Totally. <laughs> like, oh yeah, no, th th like this is just a joke or these like, like these are just like, this is somewhat normal behavior also for bonding as a group because I think that that's important as well. And I think this stuff kind of is also strangely a tool within that. And I, sometimes I, when, when you get or other people get activated by those impulses, it actually amplifies the problem. You know, like, yeah. like yeah, there's yeah. a certain certain feeding on the drama that can happen. So yeah. letting leting it go can be necessary, at least up to the point where it, it's you funny. Can't have, you ever, have you heard the term no drama, right? Like, no, like it's a term that comes up on the internet. Okay. I think also on like dating sites and just like, you know, hookup sites or whatever. People who lead with no drama as part of their profile always are the most trouble. <laughs> and you just know because to me, it never occurs to me right. that any relationship at the beginning is going to be. Why would with there drama. be drama? Right. Yeah, right. So just the fact that that's like a part of your like, how you're leading with that and your identity, I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay away from you. It's funny. Like, I was thinking a lot while watching Wig. This seems to be the month where I get together with old friends on the podcast. My, a friend of mine, uh, Jeff Israel, who's a professor at Williams College, he's going to be coming down to talk about a book that he wrote about like dealing with conflict and living with hate in society. And yeah. one, of the, one of the big points there, and this is relating to what you were just saying about humor, is that in a democratic, pluralistic society, right, where we all have to like get along and live together, at least on a basic level, in spite of vast differences in ideology, identity, whatever, whatever, there have to be spaces that are safe spaces for people to play out dangerous emotions. Yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that with Wigstock. Yeah. You know, like they're pretty mean to each other as a joke, for example. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's a big part of the culture in a way mm -hmm. is like throwing shade, but also because it's coming from a place of love and a place of common experience. Yeah. Um, but you do have to kind of trust your peers in order to be able to like 
take them down in that way or, right. or be open to it. It's scary too for people who aren't like a part of that community because they really do feel like everyone is just being really mean to each other, you know? Right. But it is just part of the language. Yeah, I think about that with um, hip hop as well. You know, like people mm-hmm. looking in from the outside who aren't sympathetic, the bragging and the, you know, a lot, a lot of the tropes of hip hop yeah. can rub people the wrong way if they have no idea what's going on, but there's an internal code, you know? And you know, maybe it's one way to think about it also is like, maybe it is about keeping some people out, you know, like maybe it's not about letting everyone feel like that's a space that they should have access to. Right. So, so le- having the language be a little bit edgier and having it be codified in a way where they f- don't feel welcomed maybe is part of the way that the culture can kind of persist. I think that's right. I mean, particularly, you know, groups that have been historically oppressed or marginalized or left out. This is, again, bringing up the ghost of the future conversation with my friend Jeff. There's legit anger, resentment, alienation, whatever that has to play out somewhere. Yeah. Otherwise, it becomes toxic in the kind of public political space. Mm-hmm. So these, you know, in these spaces, you can perform it. It makes sense. I mean, it's kind of like dancing, like dancing to sex. Like how much is dancing actually like sex? How much right. does dancing lead to sex? And how much of dancing is just pure pleasure that has nothing to do with it? You know, there's definitely like, uh, it does come from a source of either sexuality or how often do you have people like rubbing up against each other in that way in the world? Right. It's either dancing or sex. So it's like sometimes they... And people get confused. I mean, this this is the thing about these like private space, public space, you know, safe space, unsafe, you know, forum. People get confused as in the classic movie of my childhood, uh, a, a little before your time, I think, Footloose. Yeah. Oh, no, of course. In yeah. which, in which, <laughs> in which Kevin Bacon yeah. a, and his peers are persecuted for dancing because right. the, because the political leadership of the town or the religious leadership can't see the difference between dancing and sex. Right. Or they're so paranoid <laughs> that the eventual end of dancing is like all their daughters are going to be pregnant. Right. Like they're just like, and they're very like overly focused on the worst case scenario. When in fact, like if you look at a society like Iran, right, where there's like, you know, a very rigid public policing of sexuality. Mm -hmm. In fact, there is a completely insane, wild underground. Yeah. In that culture. Totally. You know, that's possibly more dangerous in some ways for people than for, for than, society. Right, right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah right. exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's funny how often like power continues to replicate that same pattern of like trying to suppress something right. in the most overt way. In the meantime, like giving it actual, giving the underground real power. I mean, I happen to think a lot of these conversations happen online now. It's partly because it's harder for it to get co-opted because people's identities are, you know, oftentimes concealed or conversations can move around. So it's like, I always just feel like young people will always rebel under whatever circumstances. Cause I used to over, I used to worry that they wouldn't be able to, you know, or that like, I can't, there won't be a culture or community that looked like the one that I was a part of because the economy is such that it's always mining for new cool trends. So like if you have a new music scene or whatever happening somewhere, like it just gets like sucked up and and co-opted so fast. And I used to really worry about that when I was like younger in my twenties, like, oh, where, where, where's the subversion going to happen? But as it turns out, it just, it just always does. Teenagers right. are so w- wired to subvert the mainstream and, and to tell their parents to fuck off however they can. And so they'll always find some way. So we have just a little bit of time left. So let's quick watch the next video sure. and then go where we go. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Right. So this is John Cameron Mitchell. Who I just saw at the Provincetown Film Festival a couple of days ago. He was up there. 
I think accepting an award or an honor, honoring him in some way. But he showed up at my screening, which was so cool. He's a really great guy. That's awesome. Yeah, he's in Wig. As Hedwig, exactly. As, as Hedwig. From Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which if you haven't seen, go you know, see the movie, first of all. Anyway, this is called How Digital Culture Created a More Extreme Society. And it's clearly in line with what we're talking about. We'll just watch a little bit and close this out together. There is danger in the incompleteness of digital communication. It's not enough bandwidth uh, to really feel. You know, I have, even right now I'm looking, you know, into a, looking at your face, which is superimposed onto a camera in the Interatron, invented by Errol Morris. And that's how he got people to talk to the camera, honestly, and you know, but we don't have those on our phones and computers yet. The camera is on top of the screen in a phone and a computer. So no one is actually looking into each other's eyes and there is trouble because of that. Tweet wars means you can't see the expression on someone's face when they're saying something, which has complexity. And you take offense easier. And you give offense easier. And in fact, giving offense is proof of existence. So you have people screaming things that they don't necessarily always believe because they want to exist because they're behind a screen they're not in a group it's a lot of it has to do with being present physically present when you're dealing with a crisis you know you don't text a breakup <laughs> you know you shouldn't it's like there's misunderstanding there's too much to be misunderstood in words he's such a smart guy <laughs> i love yes. hearing him yes. um, talk about his ideas of the world. He just has a really great way of putting things. He has like an empathy and a warmth, but he's also like, you know, talking about real things that are challenging. The idea of like the camera existing at the top of a phone and a computer screen right. uh, versus looking into somebody's eyes is, is a subtle thing I never really thought about, but it's so true. I didn't either. You know, I noticed the other day when I was like, I'm doing FaceTime with my, my son is 11 and he gets himself home from school. So like on the subway. And so like he'll, he'll FaceTime me. Yeah. And I realized the other day that you look at yourself. Totally. I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm that narcissist that's <laughs> yeah. just looking at myself yeah. and like trying to find my light. And you're like, and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so warm and I'm smiling. And you're like, what are yeah, you? Yeah. Like, well, because it's hard to look at yeah. the, the camera, which is into the other person's eyes because you're not. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder in. how much that will change. I mean, the, you know, all of this technology is moving so quickly right, and right, they may right. just figure out like, oh, actually, we're going to replace your face with that other person's face. And we're going to put the camera inside the screen. And now suddenly it totally changes, revolutionizes people's communication like that's possible. Yeah, that's right. No, I mean, that that's the funny thing about about digital technology. Um, you know, there's this guy, Jaron Lanier, who, yeah, yeah. you know him? Yeah. Um, what was the book he wrote? You are there? not a gadget. Uh, yes, which exactly. is great. I loved it. And 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 yeah, and you know he was talking at that time about music and how yep. MIDI significantly simplified the range of sounds that we were hearing in music. Yeah. Now, you know, from another perspective, it also created new sounds. But but you know, I think these are the like 
what they call externalities, like unintended consequences mm -hmm. of the fact that the vision of the programmers and designers and technologists is limited and like yeah. capability and vision. They don't right. know what the consequences will be right. of like a choice. Sometimes. And we're just always building off of what came before. So there could be an arbitrary technological development that this one person came up with that like MIDI that suddenly became the original building block of everything afterwards. And what it takes to roll that back and to say, oh no, actually we want a, a more complex um, core to this experience is really hard and really rare. And going back to what you were saying before about about the resilience of youth, for example, and how like rebellion will always find a way. Yeah. I, 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 I am optimistic about people's ability to kind of notice those gaps and then adjust or demand something different or change the technology. And I mean, it could be changed because there's like a, a cultural crisis and a need to do it. And then it could be that like trends move it into a different space. I mean, that's again why I always believe in the, the young and their desire to like upend everything because that is what keeps discourse moving forward. Yeah. Without that engine, people would just by nature it would just crystallize into something and stay there because people after a certain age, I do think are afraid to change because they don't want to be rendered obsolete. They don't want to have all of their lifetimes worth of information and wisdom be erased by somebody. And I think the tension, the generational tension, which I even see in the drag community in the right. film. I mean, it really is a little bit of that fear of like the next generation is going to try to undo all of my work or my, uh, and, right. and de devalue my experience. And that's really scary. And I think that can be, that can be applied to, you know, every culture. I guess the older I get, the more I'm returning to this. And I don't have children, so I think it probably is a little bit of a different experience when you have kids. Not to say that I won't someday, but I guess I still am rooting for the kids always because I'm, I don't have as much to lose. And I think that like mm -hmm. when I have children and I am afraid, the last thing you want is for your kids to turn on you someday, right? <laughs> Hopefully they don't. That's Usually right. they don't. Sometimes right. they do. And that's got to feel really bad and to be a really scary <laughs> moment, you know? It's sort of and you have to take it in stride and recognize that's just like it's part of their, you know, development. It's also part of the way culture stays vital yeah and it's how you stay vital if you stay yeah. connected to it you yeah. know like yeah. i mean you're never gonna be i mean it's it's a losing battle maybe to be the like cool dad who tries to understand everything but sure. to the extent that you're open to those changes yeah you, you yourself avoid getting stuck or you yeah. get less stuck you know yeah i mean it's got to be such a gift also to have kids that can like kind of keep you connected to what's happening yeah you know, not if, to say if there you are don't ways, alienate but, them as you say right, and drive yeah. them away yeah, yeah i mean exactly. it reminds me of a joke uh, chris rock once made which was doesn't make sense to hate anybody because whoever you hate will end up in your family. Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. It's like you hate black your people, your daughter will marry a black man. You right. hate gay people, your your kid will be gay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Chris McCarville, thanks so much for for, yeah. for being on Think Again today. Thank you, Jason. And this reconnecting awesome. after all these years. Yeah. What a great way. <laughs> Chris's film, Wig, it's on HBO. It's coming out. It's coming out on June 18th on HBO, okay. but it'll be there by the time this this show, this Think yep. Again airs. Yep. Okay. Great. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Okay. This was the first of two conversations this month with old friends for Think Again, but this one came as a total surprise. I was interested in the film, wig and then i learned that chris who i had no idea was uh, had become a film director was the director i set up this taping with the film's publicist and when chris showed up at big think he was like nice to meet you i said 
remember me? And there was this beautiful moment of dawning recognition on his face, a huge smile, and a hug. So amazing to reconnect like this after all these years. I'll be back next week with another different movie conversation, this time with Tracy Edwards. She's the captain of the first all-female sailing team ever to race around the world back in 1989 to 1990. It really isn't one to miss. Oh, and you can come find me at jasongotts.com. Friendly emails are always welcome.